At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we kick off the new year, we invite you to tune into our current series, The Forgotten Virtue, Learning to Love Again, where we'll discover how God defines love, Christ personifies love, and the Spirit empowers us to love one another. Together, we'll experience healing and hope in the love God designed for us, a love we carry through every season of life. 1 John 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, the Word of the Lord? For all the disruptions of 2020, there's one thing that continued to happen totally unaffected by the virus. The coronavirus swept through the world and music tours were canceled, restaurants closed, even church services suspended. Every industry has been affected for better or worse. But there's one thing that kept on happening as if the virus had never appeared. Babies were born when they were ready to be born. Babies did not stay in the womb one week longer or shorter because of COVID. Birth is that powerful. The strongest nations were brought to their knees but babies at full term kept making their entrance unhindered. And yet there's something even more powerful than birth, and that is new birth. The birth of the Spirit of God brings to a person through the preaching of the gospel. Birth which decisively places them in the light, in the realm of light, and changes everything about their lives, including the duration of their lives, because now they have life eternal. The reality of the new birth was foundational for the Apostle John. He spends considerable time in his gospel in chapter 3 explaining it to us and also in this first letter which we've been learning for the last month. He tells us a number of things about the new birth. He tells us that everyone who does righteousness has been born of God. Chapter 2 verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. He tells us that sin no longer defines those born of God. Chapter 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. A new seed is growing in us, and that seed is the word of God, which is holy and contrary to sin. He tells us that when we love from the heart and in action and in truth, we have been born of God. Chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And he tells us that Jesus, who himself was born of God, protects us so that we do not sin or are touched by the devil. Chapter 5, verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God, Jesus, protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. John does not see humanity the way that our culture does. In our culture, we view people as good or bad people based on their education or the ideologies they subscribe to. For John, 
everyone and everyone belongs to the darkness and to death, whether they went to Harvard or can't even read, unless they have been born of God, in which case they now belong to the light, to the realm of God, to the family of God. The new birth makes you a child of God. The new birth makes you a child of God. And because this new birth is spiritual, of the Spirit of God, you can't tell by looking at a sea of people who's had the new birth and who hasn't. So does that mean that we can't know? We don't know who has had the new birth? No, we can know. When a baby's born, you know that baby's alive because she cries, she breathes, she moves, she contorts her little face, you know, it makes all these different faces. And likewise, G, uh, John writes this letter to tell us that there is evidence, ample evidence, that someone has been born of God. And so he returns to the same main themes throughout his letter, which we've been studying in the last month. And so we're gonna look at three realities that will be true of you if you've been born of God. And the first one, the first one that he tells us in this chapter as evidence that someone has been born of God is that they will believe that Jesus is the Christ. So if you've been born of God, you believe in Jesus. Look at verse one. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. One of the attacks against the Christian faith from its very inception pertains to its absolute and exclusive claims. The, the many religions of the world have always claimed that they can broker how humans interact with the realm of the divine, with the gods, with the, the, the spiritual realm, with the force of life, with the principle of reason and existence. Throughout history, humanity has been deeply religious. Even though the secular push in the West to make us believe that all that exists is just the natural, what we can see and measure by the scientific method, humanity knows better. We know that we're not alone, that there is a soul, that there's more beyond the grave. The world is becoming more, not less, religious. Now, in the first century Roman world, where the majority culture believed in many gods, along, along comes the Christian faith claiming not only that there's only one God, which the Jews have been doing for centuries and suffering for it, but the Christian faith also says that this one God can only be known and accessed through Jesus Christ, his son, who came in the flesh and suffered for our sins. All those different points of doctrine that I just mentioned were offensive or idiotic or both to many people. And some of those people had infiltrated, were a part of some of the congregations that John is writing to. So the Christians are hearing, hearing competing truth claims. Did Jesus come in the flesh or not? Is he the Christ, the Son of God or not? Are certain behaviors sinful or not? And so John writes to correct error, to define the true gospel, and to give assurance of faith to true believers. And so John, the first thing he says here in this chapter is, you know that you've been born of God if you believe that Jesus is the Christ. So if you deny that Jesus is the Christ, the one who was to come from God, then you have not been born of God. Sometimes we can think that belief in Jesus was easier in the first century. That because they, if they were willing to believe in many gods, what's the big deal about adding one more? 
But see, that's precisely the point. Jesus is not one more, and he's not ever been one more. The Christian claim, listen to this, the Christian claim is that the logos, the principle of reason by which the Greeks believed everything in the universe was ordered, became human. That's an astounding claim that the one by which all had ever been created and existed, that one had become a human. And that human lived among the Jews and ate fish and suffered a Roman uh, death on a Roman cross, the death of a criminal, and by that very death atoned for the sins of the world. That human demanded allegiance, launched the kingdom of God, and would return with all power over all nations and kings of the world. That human demanded absolute loyalty from every person in the world, Jewish or not, and condemned the worship of any other god or human being, including the Roman emperor. Well, there were many teachers, false teachers, that insisted that the Son of God could not have come in the flesh. That the Son of God could not have come in the flesh. That God could not have attached himself to a human body. John says in chapter 4 verse 2, by this you know that the spirit of God, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. You see some false teachers believed that the eternal good divine God could not attach himself to a physical body because in their view all matter was evil, inherently evil. And therefore a divine good God could not come and indwell in a human body. All matter is evil in their view. And, and so from this false belief that all matter, everything that exists that's physical is inherently evil, there are a couple of things that happen. One is ascetic practices of harsh treatment on the body on the one hand or sinfully indulgent practices on the other. I mean, you can see this, right? If you believe that everything is evil, including the human body, you're going to be harsh to your body as many have done throughout history so you can make it bend toward goodness. Or others go in the opposite direction and say, hey, everything is evil, so what does it matter what we do? So let's just eat and drink and have sex and live however we want because it doesn't really matter. This kind of thinking is alive today and has been throughout history. You see, the Bible has taught from the very first chapter that the created order, the created world, matter is good, actually very good, but has been polluted by sin. It's been contaminated by sin. But the biblical solution to this problem of sin is not to reject the physical realm in favor of the spiritual, but rather to redeem it, to free it from its sin curse, to make it new, make it again. And in order to do that, God, in the person of his son, came into the world, inhabited a physical body in order to redeem us. God did not endeavor to remake the world from afar. No, instead, he sent us the Christ. He sent us Jesus in the flesh who came and dwelt among us and experienced human weakness and infiltrated sin and death and from within destroyed them. Oh, death, where is your sting? But I want you to understand this. If you fully embrace Jesus Christ, the one that I have been describing, 
If you fully embrace him, the one who was from the beginning and has fellowship with the Father and came in the flesh and cleanses us by his blood and forgives us from all unrighteousness when we confess it and advocates for us before the Father and takes away sin and has no sin in himself, the one who destroys the works of the devil and laid down his life for us and is greater than the one who is in the world and is the savior of the world. The one who came by water and blood and gives us understanding and is the true God and eternal life and will appear again. If you fully embrace him, then you need to be floored and beside yourself because there's nothing natural or obvious about your belief. You believe in him because you've been born of God. Your belief in him shows you, it's evidence that this thing, this new birth has happened to you from God by his spirit and you should rejoice with great joy because then that means that now you belong to God's family. The new birth makes you a child of God. Listen, there are many versions of Jesus on offer out there. And if your version of Jesus does not line up with the one that I just de described for you from 1 John, all of that was just from 1 John. Don't you love it? All that it tells us about who Jesus is. But if your version of Jesus does not line up with what we have here, then perhaps you've not been born of God. And my encouragement to you would be to look to the Son of God as he's portrayed to us in the scriptures. You want chapter and verse for what you believe about Jesus. Where does it say that? Because people believe a lot of kooky things about Christ. And I would encourage you to look to Christ as he's defined to us in the scriptures and then to receive him as life. He is the one true God and eternal life. That's the first thing. If you've been born of God, you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Christ. Secondly, the second reality in your life, if you've been born of God, is that you will love God's children. Remember what we're after. You can't tell. You can, it could be your spouse. You can't look at your, at your spouse and say, you've had the birth from above, from God. We can't tell. It's spiritual. It's from within. So how do we know? Can we not know? No, yes, we can. It's why John writes this letter. You look at the evidence. The first thing he gives us in this chapter is You'll believe in Christ. You'll affirm that Jesus is who scripture tells us he is. The second thing here is that you will love God's children. You've been born of God. You love his children. Now, this next point is totally related to the first one. But, but your English translation obscures the relationship between the two halves of verse 1. So we're going to read it again, and then I'm going to give you a more literal translation and look at what this says. So verse 1 says, let's read this together. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. It's what we just looked at. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Now, let me give you a more literal translation. It would go like this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been begotten by God. And everyone who loves the begetter loves also the ones who've been begotten by him. There's a key word in verse 1 that shows up three times and it's the word begetting. Which is a word that we don't use much at all in our language, right? We don't say, oh, John, you've been begetting children lately, right? We don't say that, you know? <laughs> 
So you can tell, you can see why the translation did not opt for that word, but then we start losing the connections that John is making for us. So what's John saying? What John is saying is this. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, then God gave you the new birth. And that new birth puts you in the family of God. And because you're in the family of God, you're going to love the father of the family. And if you love the father of the family, you're going to love the family. That's what he says in verse 2, more eloquently than I did. But that's what he's saying. It's a very profound spiritual truth. It's simple, but it's very profound. Let me illustrate this for you. I am Rain's dad. And because I don't do, you know, because I'm Rain's dad and most times I don't do stupid things by God's grace, she loves me. Okay, so my daughter loves me. She loves me as her father. But I'm also Jed's dad. And so Rain loves me because she loves me, uh, because I'm her dad. She also loves Jet because he is my child also, you see? So she loves Jet simply because he's my child and she's my child. Now, if Rain were to say to me, she doesn't say this, but if she were to say to me, Dad, I love you, but I hate Jet, I would say, no, that doesn't work because Jet's also my child. And if you're going to love me, that love needs to flow through to him as well. Do you see? That's what John is saying. He actually says exactly that in chapter 4, verse 20. He says, if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. That's the connection between the two halves of verse 1. What John is saying is, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, then God has given you new birth, and that new birth has placed you in the family of God, which means that you will love the father of the family. And if you love the father of the family, you will love the family. You cannot say that you love the father of the family and not love the family. So here's a question for us. This is very important. Do you love the family? Do you love the family of God? We've been learning this last month from John what love is, how God defines it. He tells us that love is to be expressed in action and in truth. Do you love God's family regardless of skin color or maturity or deeply held opinions, or cultural preferences. I mean, I love all of you, but I don't love some of your opinions. <laughs> you know, I mean, I hear some of the things, I'm like, geez, really? But I love you, right? And, and we have to be able to do that regardless of our upbringing or how we think this person thinks this, this person thinks that. We still need to be able to love each other because we have a culture where increasingly we're demanding that people agree with us on everything that matters to us. And if someone does not agree on everything that matters to us, we want to cancel them. We want to say, I'm done with you. That cannot be in the family of God. It's what John is saying. Listen. You love someone that belongs to the family or you love the father, you need to love that person no matter how different they are from you. And so here's the thing, the church for all the ages is going to be multicultural, multi-ethnic. Will you like the new earth? Are you going to like it? Because it's not just going to be the people that look and feel and shop and do and dress like you. It's going to be all peoples, every tribe, every nation, every language, every tongue beautiful. There's something in us that doesn't like that. And so do you love the family? 
How wide and long and high and deep is your love for God's many and diverse children? John wants to press this in. So he says it in a few other ways. Look at verse two. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. So here, John reverses the order of what he said in verse one. In verse one, he said, if you love the father, you're gonna love the father's other children. In verse two, he flips it and he says, how do we know that we love the father's other children? Because we love God and obey his commandments. John is so wise. He like disarms you in his gospel, in Revelation, in these letters, because he seems so simple. Like, oh, my children can understand John. And then you start reading him and you're like, wait a minute, uh, he already said that. And then you go back and you're like, oh no, that's not actually exactly what he said. So what is he saying? And he's like constantly like doing this to you. Uh, it's really wise. Uh, to, keep, to, to keep us from thinking that, oh, I already know what this is. Like, mm, no, not with John. We can't do that. And so he's stating the same thing in two different ways. And by stating it both ways, he's avoiding two errors that we see even today. The first way of stating the principle guards against the error of many Pharisees in Jesus' day who would have claimed that they loved God, not all the Pharisees, but many of them. They loved God, but they could be cold toward their fellow Jews. And so John is saying, you claim to love God, prove it by how much and how well you love God's children. That's the first error that he's guarding against. The second way of stating the principle guards against the error of secular humanism, which is very alive today, which attempts to cut us or wants to cut us off from God and says to us, just love your fellow human beings. We don't need God. God is of the past. God is old. We don't need God. Just love other people. That's all we need to do as humans. This is the project of humanism. And John says, no, that doesn't work. You can't love God's children and not love God. And then in verse 3, he says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So John has already insisted before that keeping God's commandments is how we show that we actually love God. He said it in different ways. In chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. In chapter 3, verse 24, he says, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. So John is stating the principle, but now he's linking it not to knowledge and not to abiding, but to love. Before he told us, you say you know God, keep his commandments. You say you're abiding in God, keep his commandments. And now he says, you say you love God, keep his commandments. Remember, I, I've told you before that John speaks to us like we are deaf, like we are blind. So he says things a few different ways so that we may catch it. Are you catching it? Have you caught it? Because this is it. The series ends today. Time's running out. Now you can still, right? You can keep reading and learning. But he's trying to drill into us a few important principles. John is at the end of his life. He doesn't have much longer. He's been fighting the good fight of the faith for a number of decades. And he, he cares deeply that the people that follow Jesus love one another with genuine love. That's who we need to be. 
And so he says, you, you, you love God? Here's how you know. You keep his commandments. And then he says something that is so refreshing and telling. He says, and his commandments, it's kind of like he throws it as an, as an aside. And by the way, his commandments are not burdensome. Now, I've met so many people who thought that God's commandments were extremely burdensome. Whether it was giving to the gospel mission or living a sexually pure life or taking the name of Jesus to those who don't know him or preferring others and giving rather than preferring self and taking, these people saw God's commandments as standing in the way of how they wanted to live their lives. Burdensome, kind of oppressive. So where's the disconnect? Because John says, God's commandments are not burdensome, and many say they are burdensome. So answering that conundrum leads us to our last point, which is if you've been born of God, you have overcome the world. Look at verse 4. He says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So John returns to the new birth here and he says something amazing. He says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. But he connects that statement to verse 3. So here's what he says. He has said, God's commandments are not burdensome. He connects that to verse 4 by the word for, which could be translated because or since. So what he says is, God's commandments are not burdensome for, because, since everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. So here's the thing, you guys. For God's commandments to not be burdensome to you, you have to have overcome the world. Now, why does the world need to be overcome? Now remember, John has told us a lot about the world. We've talked about this before. He has a lot to say about the world. Now, when John's talking about the world, um, we say he's not just talking about what Genesis 1 tells us, that everything that God created was very good. John is talking about the world fallen, uh, covered, if you will, by sin, polluted, corrupted by sin, and sin touches everything. So when John's talking about the world, that's what he has in mind. That's how he's talking about it. And so he says a lot about it in his gospel and in this letter. The world stands in opposition to God and to the things of God. The world lies in the power of the evil one and hates the followers of Jesus. The false teachers that were confusing Jesus' followers in the churches that John is addressing were from the world, not from God. So this is the condition of the world, but God sent his son into the world to be the savior of the world, and the world and his desires will pass away. The one who does God's will remains forever. He's told us a lot of things about the world. I'm going to read you another scripture. We read it before concerning the world. It's in chapter 2, verse 15. You can follow along with me if you want to. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So the reason that we need to overcome the world is that the world is antithetical to the Father. We need to overcome the world because either we love the world or we love 
the Father. These two loves are mutually exclusive. What is it about the world that is antithetical to the love of the Father? Well, John tells us the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. The world, we talked about this before, so I won't say a ton here, but the world and its values fill us with a greed for more. We want more, and when we get it, we boast about it. So that's the desire of the eyes. You can just think about this in your own life. We set our eyes on a goal. It may be a person, it may be a promotion, it may be uh, a possession, whatever it is. We want that thing, and when we get it, we boast about it. Look, look where I am. Our ego has to constantly be propped up, so we go for more, because that high from that thing does not last. And so we go after more, and when we get it, we feel great about ourselves for a while, and then we keep going. You see, that's what the desire of the eyes does, is it fills us with greed, and the pride of life makes us boast about the things that we get. So this is constantly what happens to us. We, we love the world and its values. What puts gas in our tank, it's these things of the world. That promotion, your name being great, your significance coming from whatever it is that you manage to conquer. We're all in this search. And John says, that love for the world cannot coexist with love for God. And so here we have to come back to John's exhortation that God's commandments are not burdensome and the reality for many people that they do feel very burdensome. Where's the disconnect? The disconnect is that they have not overcome the world and they've not overcome the world because they've not been born of God. John says, everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. You see, with these people that, where the commands of God feel burdensome, they, they love the world. They still love the world. And as long as I love the world, God's commands are going to feel oppressive to me. They're going to feel burdensome. Imagine that you love burgers and pizza and chicken wings, and bacon, and fries, all things greasy and yummy. Basically what you're going to be eating tonight for the Super Bowl, okay? <laughs> you love these things, yes. So in the course of time, you get a heart attack. And at the hospital, during recovery, this impossible person in scrubs comes into your room and says, doctor's orders, from now on, you can only eat soups, salads, and very small and lean portions of meat. The doctor's orders are going to feel burdensome to you. They're going to feel oppressive because you love something else. You love something else. You're going to cheat. You're going to struggle. You're going to have to go for more stints or whatever because you're like, man, I can't stop. You see, I've seen so many people who struggle with this because what they try to do is they try to tack on the Christian life to the things that they already love in the world. They are going hard after the things of the world. It's what puts gas in their tank. It's what makes their hearts just come alive. But they also know that they should have some religion in their lives. They know that a bit of God is good for them. And so they try to bring that into their life that's already fixed on this love of things in the world. And it doesn't work because those two do not mix. So God, the Bible, God's family, it all feels burdensome, kind of foreign, kind of oppressive. It's a horrible way to live. You can't, it doesn't work, and it doesn't please God. Which is why the new birth is such a gift. The new birth is amazing. Because when 
the new birth happens to you by the power of the Spirit of God, the world and its values and the power that it has over your heart, it's broken. It's nullified. How do we overcome the world? Our faith. It's what John says in verse 4. Circle those two words. Do not forget them. Our faith. That's how we overcome the world. He says, this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? Listen to me. When you believe that Jesus is all the things that we've been saying, one with God, our advocate, pre-existent, sin cleanser, destroyer of the devil, true God and eternal life, when you believe that that Jesus has the power to come into your life and show the world and its values for the lie that they are, and you turn, turn, turn from them, you don't want them anymore. You say, take that bacon away from me. I like how it tastes, but it's killing me. That's what we'll do. It changes your affections. The new birth changes your affections. It's not you loving something else and trying to put on God on top of that. No, your desires change. Now you want Christ. You love him. You like him. You're after him. Oh man, and I've seen this happen in the last five years to a number of you, and it's been amazing. As a pastor, few things bring me greater joy than seeing a religious person experience the new birth. It's an amazing thing. I love it when a person that's not religious at all, has never been to church, doesn't know the Bible, when they experience the new birth, that's awesome. I mean, that was me. And it's amazing, but that's pretty obvious because they were going in this direction that clearly had nothing to do with God. Now, 180. They're a different person. Amazing. But when a religious person, where someone perhaps has grown up in the church, And they've just always gone, and it's always been kind of a part of their lives. And yet they do not know God. And then they do. Then the new birth happens to them. Oh, my goodness. It's amazing. And I've heard it from so many of you where you've talked about how your life had religion, and you would read the Bible, and you go to church. But then, but it was really just like this thing, this tradition, whatever it was. But then your eyes were open to Christ And the thirst, thirst, thirst that you now have for him is insatiable. You just want more and more and more. That is awesome. And we need to pray for that. Because I don't think there's anything worse than going through life with religion without God. Religion without God is toxic. It's burdensome. It's unattractive. No one wants that. In fact, when a lot of people in our culture think of Christianity, that's what they think of. They think of religious people who don't really know God. That's not the only thing, but that's a big part of it. How do I know? Because when I hear them describe what a Christian is, like, ah, uh, that's not what a Christian is. So whatever they're thinking is not really matching up. But part of the reason is that there are a ton of people who perhaps call themselves Christians in our culture, but they've never experienced a new birth. And it's unattractive. And it's gloomy. And worst of all, it's damning. 
Because you could spend your whole life going to church, but Jesus will have nothing to do with you for all eternity. And so my prayer, and I hope that we can pray this together, is that there would not be one person in our congregation that is religiously lost. So here's the question. Do the desires of the flesh, of the eyes, and the pride of life have a controlling power in your life? We all have remnants of these things. We're all battling them. But do they have a controlling force over you? Is that what puts gas in your tank? If so, then perhaps you've never experienced the new birth from God. This does not come from a person. This does not come from you. This does not come from you saying, I choose Jesus. This is something that God does within you as you surrender to the beauty and greatness of Jesus Christ. But if you've overcome the world, if the things that used to get you really juiced up, now you're like, man, that was garbage. What was I doing? It was nothing. I was destroying my life. I was hurting the people around me. I was filled with this greed and this pride. It was all about me, me, me. I hate that stuff. I still see it in there, but oh, I hate it. I confess it. I have friends that are praying for me and helping me. Man, you've overcome the world. That should make you so excited. And if you love the family of God, these are the people that you live and die for. And by the way, let me just say that for some of you, you need to really ask that question. If you've been born of God, you love God's children. Because unless you have another church, there is no evidence in this church family that you love these people. Because you're not involved. No one would call you in the middle of the night to ask you to help them. Because you've not made yourself available and accessible to anyone. So you've got to really consider that question because John is dead serious and very crystal clear on this. You say, I love God, and you're not demonstrating your love for your brother, you're a liar. But if you do love God's people, and it is obvious, then praise God. And if all your trust, you're trusting Jesus above all things, then praise God. Because now you're part of the family of God. The new birth makes you a child of God forever. The new births happen to you by the Spirit of God, you will never leave God. You see people, they stop, right? They like do this Christian thing for a while and then they just go straight back to the world. They never had the new birth. Anyone can put on religion for a long time. You know this. There are millions of people that do this. They are very deeply religious, do not know God. It's a big deal. Now, in just a few moments, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And um, I want to make something clear that you can belong to God's family and still struggle with sin, right? So if you're struggling with sin, does that mean that you have not been born of God? No. In fact, John says the opposite. If we say that we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Then he says, but if we confess our sins then the Father is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the cleansing agent is the blood of Christ. 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, 
cleanses us, purifies us from all sin. All sin. Isn't that amazing? This is why we take the Lord's Supper. And so as we take the elements, the bread, the cup, symbolizing his body and his blood, take a few moments to meditate on the things that the word is teaching us today. Confess your sins to Christ. Turn, turn, turn from them. And then receive his forgiveness anew. He cleanses us from all, not just some, all sin. Have you given your love to the world and its values? Have you neglected to love the family of God? Have you wavered in your trust in Jesus Christ as the only one who can make your life secure and satisfy you eternally? By his death, Jesus has secured our place in the family of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this word of truth. We thank you for the new birth. Oh God, thank you. Thank you that we can be born again. Because Father, I remember myself those first 18 years of my life. And the prison that my mindset was and that my desires were. Oh, you rescued me. You opened the door, broke the chains, and out I went by the power of your Spirit because of the attraction of Jesus Christ. He is so attractive, eternally attractive. His wisdom, his beauty, his power, his mercy, his grace. Oh, we could just go on and on. All those things that John, just John's short, short letter told us about Jesus, who he is. Thank you, God, that in him, by faith in him, we overcome the world. Father, I pray for anyone who is here who might be, maybe they are religious, but they've never experienced the new birth, and they haven't even known why the Christian walk feels so heavy and so burdensome and so something that they would, they're just doing it out of fear because they don't want to go to hell. But, but oh man, if, if it could just be different, they could rewrite the Bible, they would. Father, I pray for them. I pray that by the power of your spirit, by this word from John even, you would make them alive in Christ. Give them this otherworldly from heaven new birth. Would you give it to them, God? We do not want one person to be religiously lost. We all want to follow you faithfully. So help us take this test that John gives us, how we know that we're alive in you. Is Jesus our only trust? Do we love? Is there evidence that we truly love your people? And have we overcome the world and its passions and desires? Thank you for Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. Thank you that in him we have forgiveness, the forgiveness of sins. Thank you that he gave his body to be beaten, to be shamed so that we could be alive in him. And he gave his blood that we could be forgiven and this new covenant could be sealed for all eternity. We pray in his name. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.